As I said earlier, we've been listening to the story of Samuel for several weeks now. And this week, we jump ahead quite a few years from where we ended last week in chapter 7. So the narrator takes us to this pivotal point in Israel's history, this transfer of uh, kind of political organization. Samuel, the man of God who rescued Israel from a really long season of spiritual national turmoil, who directed them to God again and again and provided them safety from the surrounding nations, Samuel is now old. And we're not told why, but Samuel's sons haven't followed in his steps. Now, we're only a little ways into this story, but this is the second time we've heard of a scenario like this. An older man who's respectable in nearly every way, but his sons have struck out on their own. They've abandoned the ways of their father. The last time we heard about it, it was a man named Eli. He was a priest, and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were stealing and fornicating at the temple of God. Now, when you're reading a story like this, if something happens once, it can be an oddity, you know, just a one-time thing. But if something happens twice, your antennae should go up. What, what's going on here? Now, this has happened, like I said, twice in a very short period of time. And again, we don't know why it's happened this time. The last time we heard about it with Eli, there were some clues that he had abdicated his responsibility to his sons and that he had shown this passivity toward his sons' evil, toward their misbehavior. We don't quite get that with Samuel and his sons. We hear that Samuel has appointed his sons as judges in his place despite their greed, so it's possible that Samuel is overlooking his son's misbehavior. It's possible, but there's nothing explicit here. Either way, this being the second scenario like this, and rest assured, this isn't going to be the last. King David is going to have as much trouble with his sons as anyone, right? They're going to try to murder him. But what we're seeing with these repeated examples of fathers and sons is that the Bible is calling fathers to a special kind of attention special kind of awareness. Of course, fathers can't control their sons, and fathers can't guarantee their son's success in any way in life. But I, I think the Bible is trying to remind fathers of their ongoing responsibility to their sons. Our sons need us in different ways throughout their, our, their lives, and it's a father's job to try to discern throughout the son's life what it means to fulfill that responsibility during that particular season of life. Now, one of the clear ways the Bible is saying that sons need fathers is in the area of morality. Sons need fathers to be a consistent example of righteousness. And when, their son, when sons go off the rails, which this is going to happen, they need a father who will lovingly rebuke them. Look, the, the Bible isn't trying to guilt fathers. It isn't trying to say the weight of responsibility is solely on them for a son's decisions. But the Bible is saying that if a father isn't willing to go to the son when the son is misbehaving, that the father is in some way abdicating their responsibility. Now, this can look different in different scenarios, but it is calling fathers to this kind of attention. 
So as much as this book of 1 Samuel is going to be about lots of other things, it's also a book about fathers and sons and the importance of the relationship between them. How much sons need a righteous father. Now the rest of this chapter deals with this start of a major transition in Israel's political structures. And here's how we're going to look at this chapter this morning. There are three kings in view. Three kings in view. The first is the rejected king. The second is the demanded king. And the third is the coming king. So first, we're going to look at the rejected king. Since the time of Moses and Joshua, they led Israel into the promised land. The Israel's only form of political leadership has been what was called judges. This is one of the books uh, prior to 1 Samuel, right? These were leaders who popped up only in a time of need. You could call them charismatic leaders. They popped up when Israel was being pressed in by the surrounding nations and they needed someone who would band the nation together to fight together. So a person like Deborah, Gideon, or Samson would arise for this season to, to lead Israel and to protect them. Samuel, actually, is one of these judges, but Samuel merges the role of judge and prophet, this sort of spiritual role and this protecting role, political role. But this kind of leadership has gone on for about 300 years, and during this whole time, there's been no standing centralized political system. All the while this is going on in Israel, essentially all the nations around them have a monarchy a centralized political system with a king at the top. And then just think of everything that goes along with having a king. You have taxes. And so you can develop a standing army. You have dedicated workers who develop sophisticated methods of war. You have an impressive capital city with state-sponsored monuments that intimidate other nations. You have this royal entourage of servants, including probably very beautiful women that go with the king wherever he goes. We could go on. If you can try to imagine this, Israel has all these successful nations around them. And by, in comparison, they look like this backwater, unorganized mob. Anytime they go to war, they just have this leader who's popped up that they're entrusting to take them into war and to protect them. But there's no entourage with that person. So if a neighboring country even wanted to do a state dinner in Israel, Israel's got nothing to offer. They have no capital city like this. So what we're seeing in this chapter is partly Israel being embarrassed they're tired of trying to be different from the other nations. Let's get with the program already is basically what Israel's saying. Here's the problem with what Israel's asking for. Their very existence is based on being different from other nations. This is what God called Israel out for. I'm going to make you different from the nations around you. This is why God chose them to bring them out from the nations so that they could lead the nations back to the true God, to the ways of true human flourishing. This is the same struggle that Christians have in the world. We don't want to be different just to be different. And sometimes we frankly get tired of being different. It can cause so many arguments, so many disagreements. 
But if we compromise all our difference, we can also lose what it means to be a Christian. This is the tricky part. Now, there was something to this whole no king thing. In the mind of those other nations, the king was either a god, an incarnation of a god, or this semi-mythic human being who had been chosen by the god to mediate between the divine world and earth. So all these Asian nations around Israel who have a king, that king was either considered a god or this semi-mythic human being, not just a regular person. So the motto in the nations around Israel would have been something like this, the king is a god. But God wanted to teach Israel a different motto. Israel would need to learn to say, God is the king. These are drastically different. So this is why Israel didn't have a king from the beginning, because they needed to learn that the absence of a king didn't create a power vacuum. It wasn't as if no one was leading Israel if they didn't have a king. Also, God was protecting Israel from the inevitable immoralities that go along with absolute power. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. But this whole lesson was not going to come easy for Israel. So in the book of Judges, do you remember Gideon? Gideon was called upon to defeat the Midianites. Gideon was able to gather up a a pretty large army. And God tells Gideon, it's too big. Everybody, Israel's going to think you did this all on your own. You need to whittle down your army. He whittles it down to 300 people. And with these 300 people, people, Gideon goes and defeats the Midianites. Now, here is what the Israelites do immediately after this. They go to Gideon and they say, will you rule over us and your sons rule over us? So, in other words, institute a monarchy and it will be inherited by your children. Here's how Gideon responds. I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. You see, everything the nations believed about their king, that he would be the one who would provide them safety, that he would be the one that would provide them well-being, the Israelites were to believe this about God. God ruled over the Israelites by giving them good laws to make them a just nation so that everybody in the nation would be taken care of. There wouldn't be people on the bottom who couldn't uh, eat. God made them a just nation. And he also promised them salvation. He would protect them. He would fight with them against the other nations. But to be honest, believing this way is more difficult than believing in a king. God's battle plans are always so strange and unpredictable. At one time, it's march around this city seven times and then blow your trumpets and you'll defeat them. At another point, it's whittle down your army to bare bones and I'll win the victory. God's battle plans are unpredictable, and He's invisible, unlike a king. So here, in asking for a king, Israel is rejecting the kingship of God for something that's visible and assumedly more reliable. We can trust this king. So here's what Israel says, There shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. 
Israel expects a king to provide justice, salvation, the same things that God said he would provide. So the first king is a rejected king. God is rejected. The second king is the one who's demanded. It's not always the case that politics become idolatrous. This form of false worship. But that is exactly what happens here. The people transfer their expectations for righteousness and salvation from God to government. A king who will judge us and fight our battles for us. Give us a king who will judge us and go out before us, they say. They're demanding this king who will do what God did, order their moral lives through justice and provide protection. And they make their demand after given this full warning of how the king will abuse his power. He'll take and take and take until they become slaves to the king. As I said a minute ago, kings and other nations were viewed with this godlike identity, right? No one is going to ask the god, do you think you might be taxing us a little too much? Yeah, I didn't think so either. Do you think you really need my land too? You do. Yeah, you're right. No one's going to ask the king, or a godlike king, question them and their motives. So what happens when you have a king who has all this power? They become a despot, a ruler wholly immune from moral judgment. And so Israel isn't going to be immune from having these autocratic leaders who become corrupt. This is what happens every time a people puts their faith in politics rather than God. They eventually are ruled by tyrants. Now, what do we do with a story like this in Scripture? It's easy to try to spiritualize it, to find spiritual truths within it. But that can limit what God has to say in our world. It makes God ethereal rather than physical and active in our world. So here's one of the things Christians have to do with stories like this. We read them, we immerse ourselves in them, and then we look out at our world and we ask, how does this story speak into our reality, our world right now? Now, here's one of the ways I think it speaks. In the last several hundred years in our part of the world, faith in God has slowly eroded away, especially in public culture. So things like uh, don't take your faith to the ballot box kind of thing. It's hard to justify political arguments through faith now. But you can't lose faith in God without filling it with something else. So in this void of faith, one of the common places our culture puts hopes is in political ideologies or candidates. So a particular system of politics. It can be republicanism, liberalism, socialism, or a particular candidate who fans the flames of hope. And we begin to think, maybe this time things are going to get sorted out. Is it hot in here or is it, is it only me? Can we, can we turn it down a little bit? Thanks, Rick. I did say someone shake their head yes, that it wasn't just me. I think that's what they meant, that it's not just me, right, Stephanie? 
every time that we begin to get our hopes up at about a particular candidate or a particular system, there's this danger and possibility that we make politics our God. And even if we believe in God, we're vulnerable to being co-opted by a culture that's made politics its God. So we might feel the need to shout just as loudly as they do. If we're going to play the game with them, we've got to play it the way they do. But when we do that, we compromise who we are. We're formed into the image of the world instead of being transformed into the image of God, the true king. So just last week, there was this essay online titled, Politics Can't Fill the Holes in Our Souls. Politics Can't Fill the Holes in Our Souls. The author's proposing that partisan politics has become the, the creed, the new statement of faith and purpose for lots of Americans. Now here's one example where they say this is playing out. So most Americans would now say belief in God isn't necessary to be a good person. This is just reality. But in 2016, nearly half of Republicans and more than a third of Democrats said that members of the other party were immoral. Do you see what this means? Political party is now more reliable for making you a good person than God is. That means politics has become an idol. It's filled the void. This story, looking out at our world, is warning us and urging us, don't put your faith in the wrong king. Don't become so bent on a particular system or a candidate that you forget the real king. Because when you transfer your hopes from God to government, you're bound to be disappointed. So the first king is the rejected king. It's God himself. The second is the demanded king, a stand-in for God who will only disappoint us. And the third is a coming king. So does all of this story mean that the way Israel was at the start of the story is the ideal political system? Let me ask it another way. Can we all just say that liberal uh, libertarianism is the right way and go home? Can we? The point of this story is much, much bigger than figuring out the ideal political structure. God had even prescribed a law for Israel's kings in Deuteronomy, which Deuteronomy was written prior to 1 Samuel. So I think we have to assume that Israel's request for a king is evil in the way it's requested, not in the request itself. Every political system is going to fail at some point to fulfill all its promises. This is part of being human in our broken world. Every system will fail to fulfill all its promises. But it doesn't mean politics is pointless. Every system, every vocation in our world has its brokenness. And politics has it too. But it doesn't mean it's pointless. Israel's kings are going to fail, but they're going to provide a vision of what a king could look like. They'll provide a longing for what a king could be. Israel will long for a king who can embody both humility and power. 
who can order their moral life in righteousness, justice, and at the same time with mercy and forgiveness. Israel's kings are proof that there's only one king who can rule over humanity, only one king who can be both righteous and merciful, who can have power without becoming a tyrant, who uses his power to become a servant. So at his trial, Pilate asks Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus tells him, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This truth is that Jesus is the only one capable of being king over humanity, of ruling over humanity and with justice and with mercy. And so this is why we hear in Isaiah, nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. This is the trajectory of all politics. Nations will come to Christ. Kings will come to the true king. And they will all bow. This is the trajectory that all politics should point to now. To the one who is the true king. And all leaders submit to that leader. So what do we do with this? I want to make two quick points of application. First, we must reject the idolatry of politics. This is why there are Christians who can't have conversations without wanting to kill each other. Or they they may not be able to worship in the same place because we're being conformed to the world and pressed into its image. If we're following Jesus as King, we can disagree about politics and it won't destroy our relationships. Because our mutual devotion to Christ and the Gospel is deeper than any other commitment we make. Second, is a statement about identity. The church is a political body. Now, some of you might have just thrown up a little bit when I said that. Hear me out. This is what the Apostle Paul wanted to get across to the folks who wore their Roman citizenship like a badge of pride. He said to them, we're citizens of heaven. Our allegiance is to King Jesus. Our mission is to labor together for His righteousness and His justice to become evident in the world until His kingdom arrives in full. So he tells them, stop wearing so proudly your badge of Roman citizenship and wear proudly your badge of Christ and of His kingdom. So even though We should vote and we should remain active citizens of our community and country to the degree that we feel called. Our most important political duty is to serve King Jesus, to participate in His body, the church body, and to seek His kingdom through our gifts and our vocations. Now, this means that regardless of our political beliefs, we seek justice, righteousness, and well-being for others because of Jesus, regardless of how we vote. This means that beyond any political slogan, our hope is in the good news of God's kingdom because it's the gospel. 
The news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that brings forgiveness of sins, renewal of humanity, and renewal of the entire cosmos. This is the hope Christians proclaim beyond all else. No political party can bring renewal of our world. No political vision can forgive the sins of humanity and renew people from the inside out. This is only the hope of Christ. And so this is the motto of Christians. This is the slogan. Christ is the risen King and there is no other. And this is the trajectory to which all politics should point. Now, it's always appropriate that we follow a sermon with a confession of our faith, our belief in Christ. So in just a second, Joe is going to come up and he's going to lead us confessing our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. But I think it's especially appropriate after going through this topic and this story. Because in the creed that we're about to confess, what we're doing is we're pledging our allegiance to Jesus as the true king. And we're saying that it's to him that all leaders will bow and all people. So it's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.